Mark chapter 14, we're going to begin reading in verse 53, and I invite you this morning to stand with me uh, in reverence to God's word as we begin in Mark chapter 14. Mark writes for us, and they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and covered his face and to strike him, saying, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. You may be seated. Between this week and next week's message, we have a couple of different contrasts when it comes to the character of three particular people in the biblical storyline that we're looking at over these two weeks. We have a contrast of events that take place. This particular week, this week we are looking at the event of Jesus' uh, initial trial before the high priest. And then next week we look at Peter's denial of Jesus. Interestingly though, of course, because it is written literature, they have to appear one after the other. These are two simultaneous events that are taking place, and as such, they stand in stark contrast to one another. Peter follows Jesus from a distance, and then he goes into the courtyard where he is found there beside the fire, warming himself. And so as Jesus is upstairs in this makeshift trial with the religious leaders, Peter is in the courtyard beside the fire and ultimately denying Jesus. Where Jesus stands boldly, Peter denies him. And that's what we'll look at next week, but we should know that these are two things that are taking place at the same time. But then we have within our text this morning a contrast between Jesus and and a man who Mark does not give us his name, but the other Gospels do, a man named Caiaphas. This man who ultimately stands up before Jesus and accuses him of blasphemy is the high priest of Israel who was appointed to this position by the government, 
but holds a very important position within uh, the religious expression of the day. He is supposed to be a pious man. He is supposed to be a godly man. And yet what we find by the end of our text this morning is that Jesus and Caiaphas are most definitely standing at odds with one another. As we go through this text, it is important to understand this distinction. It's important to understand this contrast between these two men. Because Caiaphas here holds the title of high priest. But we know from further on in God's Word in the book of Hebrews at the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5 that the position of high priest has been given to someone else by the book of Hebrews. It is no longer Caiaphas who is high priest of God, but rather we understand that God has called a new high priest. He has appointed a new high priest who makes intercession for us, who mediates between us and God, and His name is Jesus. So we have, in this confrontation, two high priests, one who is true and one who is false. And these two high priests deliver testimony about Jesus. Caiaphas accusing Jesus and Jesus speaking about himself. This idea of testimony, especially contrasting testimony, is very prevalent within this text. It's used, or some derivative of this word is used seven different times within these very few verses. In verse 55, they're seeking testimony against Jesus. In verse 56, they bear false witness against Him, but their testimony did not agree. In verse 57, again, they bear false witness. In verse 59, their testimony, again, does not agree. In verse, 50, in verse 60, rather, Caiaphas asked about the these men testifying against Jesus. And then at the end, he asks, what further witnesses do they need? They've heard Jesus speak. It's an important theme. And I think it's important for us as we're thinking about this new year and we're thinking about our emphasis of, of reaching one to consider our testimony and our witness about Jesus. Unfortunately, we often think about this word testimony as as something that we talk about ourself. We talk about sharing our testimony of what God has done. And that is an important part of how we reach other people. People want to hear about what God has done in our life. What He has done for us. What He has done to us. What He has delivered us through. But it's important to remember that as important as our testimony is, it is exceedingly more important that we have a proper testimony and witness about Christ. That we share things that are true. That we are accurate in our portrayal of Christ and what He has done. It, it, does, not serve, uh, it does not serve people well when we do not um, accurately share what Christ has done. When we try to manipulate people. We try to give false testimony, false witness. When we promise things that Jesus will do for someone that Jesus Himself has never promised. 
So as we look through this text this morning, I want us to think about the false testimony that is prevalent, the true testimony that is prevalent, and then ultimately at the end of this text, what we see is the false piety, the false religiousness that comes out of a false testimony. There's false testimony, there is true testimony, and then there is false piety. Let's look first at this false testimony that takes place. They arrest Jesus as we saw last week. They seize Him in the Garden of Gethsemane and they lead Him to the home of the high priest. Now everything that they do here seems to be wrong. We don't have available for us a lot of writings still today about the judicial proceedings of the religious court of Jesus' day. We, we have some writings, but they come from several hundred years later, and it's, it's hard to tell if, if things changed over time, but most likely they didn't change a whole lot. And so what we know from that is that they, the Jewish leaders here simply do not follow their own procedures. They had procedures as we do today. We have certain procedures that must be followed when someone is taken into court, when someone is arrested, uh, how they are processed. And then, and then uh, once they are placed on trial, they have uh, many rights to protect the people that are innocent. And many of those things were still in place here or were in place here 2,000 years ago, but they simply aren't followed. They're, they take Jesus to the high priest's house This is not where they would normally conduct a trial. It would not be at his house. They had places set aside to do that very thing. He's taken at night. Again, that that wasn't done. You didn't gather late into the evening. Here, we're, we're fairly certain this is long after midnight when they gather together to have this trial. They bring him here, and they begin this trial in the middle of the night. It would have no doubt taken some time for these men to have gathered. And they begin to have a trial, and it's not an appropriate one. And what they begin to do is call witnesses to give testimony, and it's false. The Bible, the Old Testament, demands that when you're going to have a trial where someone is um, going to be put to death or potentially could be put to death, you must have two witnesses, and these witnesses must agree. Their testimony must agree perfectly or that person is not eligible to be put to death. The job of the religious leaders, just like a court today, is not to prove someone guilty, but a judge who sits there is just to assure that a person gets a fair trial. It's it's one of the reasons why when we see uh, trials on television and we, we... just know that this person is, is a terrible human being and we're quite confident that they are guilty and then the jury comes back and says not guilty. And we're just shocked. You know, how could this happen? Well, first of all, because you've read it in the newspaper doesn't mean you know all the details of a trial. That's why a judge is there who knows the law or at least is supposed to know the law to make sure that everything is carried out fairly. And the judge, he, he, has no, uh, he has no stake in what happens. The only time you ever see a judge make personal comments is after someone has been proven guilty by a jury, and then he is giving sentencing. 
then that's his job. He can, he can talk about how despicable a person is because a jury of their peers have found them to be guilty. Well, it's the same for the religious leaders here. They are supposed to be impartial. They are only supposed to decide whether someone is guilty or innocent. They are not supposed to get themselves involved. But what do we see here? They are seeking testimony against Jesus to find out whether he's guilty or innocent. Is that what it says? They, they were impartial and they were just looking for good testimony to give them a fair understanding of what is going on. That's not what it says. They are seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Their goal throughout this entire process has been the death of Christ. This is false testimony against Jesus. This is the wrong way of understanding this because this is not their job. They are to have no stake in this according to the religious laws and yet they, they insert themselves into this trial to make him die. But look, as how Mark ends verse 55, they're seeking to put him to death but they found none. There's no testimony. What are they going to charge him with? He had done nothing wrong. For many, verse 56, bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Again, we have further false testimony. We have further false witnesses against Jesus. They bore false witness against him. Does that term sound familiar? To bear false witness? It should. If you go to the book of Exodus in chapter 20, you find that it's the ninth commandment. Not to bear false witness. And yet here in this religious court where all of these high priests and scribes have gathered, all of these elders of the people, these, these respected members of the society, these religious leaders of the people in Jerusalem and throughout Israel, they're encouraging, encouraging that these people who stand up to testify against Jesus would break the ninth commandment. But there's a problem because when they, when they lie, as often happens when we see people lie, their testimony simply does not agree. This is one of the wonderful things that you can see if you're watching a trial, if you're sitting in a courtroom or if you're watching on television, a lot of major trials are now televised. You can see that one witness will come up and the witnesses aren't allowed in the courtroom. They're not allowed to hear the testimony of other witnesses. And the witness comes in, and they go up there, and they're sworn in, and they begin to talk, and they talk about everything that's happening. And it just sounds very damaging for the person who is sitting there on trial. But then that person leaves, and the next witness comes in, and they begin to share, and it's a different story. Now, one of them may be telling the truth and one of them may be lying, but what have we done? We now have doubt, if you're sitting on that jury, as to well, which is true. They both stood there. They both swore that this was the truth, but yet their, their testimony did not agree. This is exactly what happens here. Their testimony in verse 56 just does not agree. They're, they're telling two different stories because there's nothing to tell about Jesus. There's, there's, nothing fault, there's nothing true to tell about him that would warrant such a charge against him. In verse 57, some stand up. Again, more than one, and they begin to tell 
this story, they talk about Jesus saying that he would destroy the temple and that he would uh, rebuild it in three days. Now, this sounds like something we've heard before. In John chapter 2, we've heard Jesus talk about this. We've heard at least something that sounded similar to this. But it's not the same. If you're to look, and you don't need to look this morning, but if you're to look in John chapter 2, what we see is Jesus talks about if they destroy the temple. He says in verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now think about that. It's, it's subtle, but it's different. Jesus never said He would destroy the temple. He never said He would destroy this building that was out in front of Him whenever He's talking there in John chapter 2. But someone has heard it, or at least a number of people have heard it, and they've come and they've decided that they're going to bear false witness about Jesus, that they're going to say that He said He would destroy the temple. That's not what He said. He said... Destroy the temple. If you do it, which they were, they were going to, because he wasn't talking about a building, he was talking about himself. He says, if you destroy that, then in three days, I'll build it back up. John even records for us that after Jesus had been crucified and had been raised from the dead, that his disciples understood that he was talking about himself and not a building. Even about this, which is sort of something that Jesus sort of said in verse 59. Even about this, their testimony did not agree. This is why it's so dangerous when there's false witness about Jesus. Because Jesus is truth. He's not a truth. He's not some of the truth. But the Bible tells us that Jesus is the truth. He is truth. And so when there are false witnesses about Jesus and false statements about Jesus, they will not agree. Just as we see in testimony in our own court system, so it is with Christ. And it's one of the reasons that I believe the world is so confused about Jesus is because there are so many who bear false witness. There are so many who speak falsely about Christ that it is difficult for a normal person to decipher the truth. There are so many books that speak falsely about Christ, so many pastors or so-called pastors and preachers that speak falsely about Christ that it is difficult for a person to know and find the truth. Because people say all kinds of crazy things. Go turn on the television. Go to the bookstore and pick up some of the books that have been written allegedly about Jesus. And what you find is that there are sprinkles of the truth, but people speak falsely about him, just like here in this passage in verse 58. He talked about the destruction of the temple. He talked about it being rebuilt in three days, but he did not speak as they had said he did. Think about if you are on social media. People love to publish these pictures with quotes on them. 
you know, some of them are just, they're just encouraging and uplifting and wrong. I mean, they're just, wow. They're not even close to what Jesus said or what the Bible says or any measure of truth. They sound nice. But where does it say in the Bible that God will never put more on you than you can handle? If you can think of it, put the, put the, the um, reference in your notes, in your bulletin. You can give it to me later. I'd love to, to have it because it's not there. Where does it say in the Bible that that Jesus wants you to have uh, a big house and a fancy car and a lot of money? The guy that that died with no clothes on, nailed to a tree, with no home, no friends and no money, wants you to have those things. The one who's persecuted here on your behalf Want you to have those things, according to some people. That's not a true testimony about Christ. The, the list could go on and on and on because, because people have taken and misused and twisted the things that Christ has said, and they bear false witness about Him. As we're starting a new year, we're starting this initiative, one of the things we need to be cautious of is bearing false witness about Christ. We can bear false witness if we say things that Christ didn't say, if we go further than Christ went. We can also bear false witness by lessening the things that Christ said, by being dishonest about what Christ said. These people come and they're seeking after His death. And they do so by giving false testimony, by bearing false witness, by lying about Jesus and what He had done and what He had said. We need to caution ourselves on that. It's one of the reasons as a Christian you need to be careful who you're reading, careful who is influencing your thought about Christ because some of those people out there are just wrong. We live in a time of false prophets and false preachers. And we need to be understanding and wise in our discernment of those people. You go to my office right now and you would be looking through the books and you may find one and go, how is this on your shelf? That's an odd one for you to have. It's because I, I believe that I have the capability of discerning, okay, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. But I want to know what he's talking about because on occasion somebody that's sitting out here will come to me and say, what do you think about this person or that person? What do you think about this or that I want to know about it. You need to have the wisdom to understand the difference in those things. Not to just pick up everything and assume that all things are equal. We've got to be wise. Because if not, we will be caught up in sharing a false testimony about Christ. That's all these people have done. They've poured on these lies in an attempt to kill Jesus. And so look at his response. And the high priest stood, this is verse 60, 
This is where we get into truth. We, we have the contrast between the false and the true. The high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? So Jesus is in this large room. He is uh, most likely sitting by himself in the center of all of these people who desire him to die. And Jesus hasn't said anything. He's been quiet. He's not responded to their accusation. And it's made the high priest angry. And so Caiaphas comes out of wherever he is sitting in this group and he comes and directly confronts Jesus. And he he says, hey, have you nothing to say? What is it that these men testify against you? What have you done, in other words? What's your response to all of this? See, Jesus, of course, in his infinite wisdom, has not needed to make any response because they have nothing. All this false testimony is not agreeing. So why does he need to say anything to this point? But Jesus remained silent, verse 61, and he made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, he asked him a direct question at this point. Are you the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? He asked him a direct question. And it's a true question, or at least the answer to it has the potential to be true for Christ. And this is his reply. Jesus said, verse 62, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus gives accurate testimony about himself. He gives truth. He's always done that. He says, I am. Of course, that, that stirs for us Old Testament imagery of, of uh, Moses talking to God through the burning bush and Moses questioning, well, who should I tell them is sending me when God sends Moses to go and have this confrontation with Pharaoh? Moses doesn't know God's name. He wants to know, hey, who do I... Who do I say sent me? And God simply says, I am. So here, to what extent Jesus has that undergirding his, his answer, it's hard to tell, but it's, it sticks out to us as we hear it. Very clear, he doesn't, he doesn't kind of twist it around. He doesn't try to make apologies for it. We're good at doing that about the things that we believe. We're good at doing that Uh, about the things of Christ, but Jesus doesn't kind of twist it around or sugarcoat it or minimize it. He says, I am. I am the Christ, the Son of the blessed. And if that wasn't enough, and that's already going to have angered them greatly, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. That is quoting from Psalm 110. And coming with the clouds of heaven, quoting from Daniel 7, 13. Now think about this. He is now seated in a position that has no power. He is seated at a position where they are desiring that he would die. 
And he tells them, I am who you have said I am. And by the way, one day you're going to see me not seated here in this position that seems powerless, but you're going to see me seated at the right hand of power. No longer will I be seated here, for I'm on trial and I've submitted to you, which is what Jesus had done. He had given himself over to them. He says, well, one day you're going to see me seated at the right hand of power. You're going to see me in the position of authority sitting at God's right hand. He's talking about his ascension, which happens in Acts chapter 1, where he ascends from earth back into heaven, where he is seated at God's right hand. He says, talks about that from Psalm 110. But then he goes further. He says, not only will I go from this position of weakness where I've submitted myself to you to a position of power seated at God's right hand, but after that, there'll be a time coming when you see me coming with the clouds of heaven. If you go to Daniel 7, 13, I encourage you to look there later, we get this beautiful picture of the coming of God's chosen one. So he says, I'm going to go from this position where I am at right now, I'm going to go to a position of power seated at God's right hand, and then I'm going to come again in judgment, because that's Daniel 7, the vision that we see there in Daniel 7 is the coming of God in judgment. He says, and I'm going to do that too. I'm going to return. I'm going to return to the Father, and then I'm going to return once again here. And all of you are going to be witnesses to that coming judgment. As you can imagine, that is not taken too kindly. They're not very happy about that. In fact, at that point, the high priest tears his garments... He tears them in anger. He wants no further witnesses. He wants them to condemn Jesus to death. Are you and I willing to have the honesty about Christ even if it causes the world around us to have this type of reaction. Are you and I willing to be honest in our witness about Christ? Because I want to promise you that we have come to the end of that being acceptable in our society. We've come to the end of honesty about Christ being acceptable. It just, it just isn't anymore. We need to just forget it. It's not going to be acceptable again. It's not going to come back in. It's not like styles and fashions that go out and have their seasons and come back in. That's not going to happen. Honesty about Christ being acceptable is over. We need to just accept that and move on. And that's fine. That doesn't hurt the church. That doesn't hurt our witness. As a matter of fact, it may help us greatly in the long term that being honest about Christ is no longer acceptable. 
The question is not whether we need to do something to make it acceptable again. The question is, are we going to continue being honest about Christ even though it is not acceptable in our culture anymore? If not, you're really wasting your time this morning. Maybe you think you're wasting it anyways. That's fine. That's your decision. But trust me, if you simply don't want to be honest about Christ, this is all kind of a waste. Christ, in the face of death, is honest about himself. Listen, twice we've already read. They, they bear false witness against him, but they find no witnesses. They can't get two to agree. And then they talk about this destruction of the temple, but they can't get their testimonies to agree. They've got nothing on him. they got nothing. But the high priest knows he can ask this question, and this can be enough. This can get them to forget all of this stuff. Listen, there's supposed to be a second day of trials when there was a capital trial. This, what Jesus says, does not count as blasphemy under religious law, as they're going to say in the last few verses. None of those, he, he just, he pushes Jesus into it, knowing that he can get everybody on this jury, everyone in this group, to vote for Jesus' death if he'll just be honest about this question. And he is. So the question for us is, are we willing, in the face of whatever it is, to be honest about Jesus? There have been all these articles that I've seen over recent days about the, the comparison between the God of Christianity and the God of Islam, and are they the same God? If we want to be honest about Jesus, we have to say no. Allah and Yahweh are not the same God. Allah and Christ are not the same God. We just have to, if we want to be honest about Jesus, we have to say no because Jesus said, hey, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one, not some people, not people over there, or people over here, white people or black people or brown people, he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. If you don't believe that, that's, that's fine. That's your choice to believe that or not. But it's dishonest about Jesus to say that he thought that everybody could get to God whatever way they wanted. He just didn't. He said, I'm the only way. And if there were other ways to get to God except through Christ, why would we have these verses that we're going through the, the painfulness of these verses just starts here as Jesus is being beaten, but they continue on verse after verse after verse where Jesus is punished for our sin. If there was some other way, why wouldn't God have taken that way? Why wouldn't God have went in that direction? But instead, He goes with His Son because His Son is the only way. If we want to reach people with the gospel of Christ, we must do so by being honest with them. Our testimony, our witness about Christ must be true. If not, 
then we end up with what we see in these last few verses. Because we had the false witness of the religious leaders. We have Jesus' true testimony about himself. But they reject that. And when we reject true testimony about Christ, what we end up with is false piety. False holiness, if you will. The high priest tears his garment. Verse 63, he says, What further witnesses do we need? We don't need anybody else. You heard this guy. He says, you heard his blasphemy, even though it's not blasphemy, but he says, you heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Now, you notice they don't condemn him to death because they can't put him to death themselves. They have to turn him over to Pilate, and and we'll go through those things in the coming weeks. But they vote that he deserves to die. And they do this believing that they are protecting God's majesty and honor. They do this believing that they are somehow protecting and honoring God. And some, verse 65 tells us, begin to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophecy. And the guards received him with blows. These men believe themselves to be doing a very righteous act. We're protecting God. We're protecting God's majesty. We're protecting God's honor. We're protecting God's sovereignty. We're protecting Him. By destroying this man who is obviously a false teacher, this man who is teaching false things to the people, this man who could cause us to come under the condemnation of the Roman Empire, this man, we're condemning him to death, we condemn him as deserving of death, and we do so to protect God. The high priest, in this act, he shows himself to be unworthy to stand before the people as a mediator between God and man, his role that God has given him. He shows himself as unworthy of that responsibility because he falsely condemns Jesus to death. In fact, they're so caught up in their righteous anger that they cover him and they begin to beat him and spit on him. They dishonor Jesus. They have before them the one that they have been anticipating. They have before them the Messiah, their Savior, who they have been desiring to come and to save them from their affliction and save them from their bondage. And yet when they receive Him, they cover His face and they spit on Him and they beat Him. They do so to protect God's honor. How often do you think people who are religious twist the things about God to try to protect God's honor? It happens every day now in our culture. People who have these churches that teach false doctrines, is it because they're, they're malicious? I don't think so. They they just want God to to be more cool. 
They want God to be more acceptable in our culture. They want God to be more tolerant of of the sins that, that they know people like to enjoy. And so they have remade God into this, this nice, tolerant guy who lets you do whatever you want. And I don't think many of them have done that with a malicious attack on God. I think many of them, when they lay their head on their pillow at night, think that they are helping God out. That they're doing God a favor. That they're helping to protect His majesty and honor because people are coming to hear about God, except the problem is it's not the real God. It's not a true God. It's not our God. It's not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not the God who is the Father of Jesus Christ. It's not that God. It's a 2016 American materialistic God. Or whoever He is. Do you see the connection there? They think that they are doing God a favor. We'll arrest this Jesus guy. We'll protect your majesty and honor God because he is obviously talking falsely about you. He's obviously not really the Messiah. He's obviously not going to sit at the right hand of power. He's obviously not going to come in the clouds full of judgment. It's obviously not who this guy is. And so God, we're doing you a favor by covering this guy's face and beating it bloody. God, we're doing you a favor by spitting on this guy and condemning him as deserving of death and sending him to the government to be killed. God, we're doing you a favor. And yet still today, in our day, 2,000 years later, people are still trying to kill Jesus. They want to get rid of him. They don't like his message. They'll pick out a few things that they like that they can stick on a Facebook ad and make people feel good about themselves, but they don't like to read it all. They don't like to hear it all. They don't like to experience everything that Jesus calls us to do. They're still attempting to kill Jesus. And this comes out of a false sense of Holiness, friends, God does not need our protection. God does not need us to protect His majesty. God does not need us to protect His honor. He is more than capable of doing so Himself. And there is nothing that brings more honor and glory and majesty to Christ than us bearing a true witness about Him. What else could bring Him honor and glory? A false witness certainly won't do it. But when we will speak the truth about Christ, when we will be truthful about what He has said, that brings Him honor and glory. That draws men and women and boys and girls to Him. Because the Spirit doesn't bear false witness about Christ. The Spirit of God that speaks into the hearts and lives of people does not tell lies about Him. What a contradiction it is when we, through our words, are telling people that God does not hold them accountable. That God does not count sin. That God does not talk about right and wrong. And yet the Spirit is speaking into their heart and telling them that the things they're doing is wrong. Telling them that the things they're doing are right. God telling them through His Spirit that they should be doing this or that. 
And yet we are telling them through our words, through false testimony, something different. These men have a false piety, and it leads to them beating Christ. It leads to this false testimony. And a false testimony leads to a false piety. They were not holy. In fact, in this action, this man Caiaphas, who had been appointed high priest, shows that he is not worthy of his job. He shows that he is a failure. But there's good news for us as Christians, and it's the beautiful news of the gospel, is that Jesus is not only... The sacrifices, we see him at the beginning of this as he's come in and he's been led in front of these men, but he also takes the place of this false priest. This, this one who is going to be sacrificed, which that was the priest's job, right? To offer the sacrifice. He would go once a year into the most holy place in the temple and he would offer a sacrifice for the entire nation. And yet, this priest is obviously unworthy. And so Jesus not only takes on the role of sacrifices, he's been arrested and he's being led to the cross, but he takes on the role as priest. And he offers the sacrifice, he offers himself up. Jesus knows, Jesus knows that his confession of himself will lead to his death. They brought in witnesses, they could not agree, they gave false testimony they could not agree. And so he says the thing that will guarantee that he will go to his death. He says, I am. Are you the, the Christ? Are you the Messiah, the Son of the blessed? And he says, I am. And you're going to see me at the right hand of power, and you're going to see me coming in the clouds. I am he. Jesus condemns himself. By giving his true testimony. And he proves himself worthy to be our sacrifice, to be our priest, to be our king, to be our prophet, to be our Lord, to be our Savior. He proves all of that through his willingness to go and die for us. The question becomes for us are we willing, when confronted with the opportunity to give false testimony about Christ or to share the truth about who he is and what he has done for us? What decision do we make? As you think about the people whose names you've written on those cards, you think about the opportunity you're going to have to share with them Christ. Do you tell them the truth? Do you tell them the need that they have for a Savior? Do you tell them about what Christ has done? That, that He loves them and He has died on their behalf. Do you tell them that they must turn from their sin? As hard as that sounds, as unpopular as as that is, as unwilling many are to even hear that expression or to believe that there is a such thing as sin. Are you willing to stand in the face of that and bear true testimony about Christ? When faced with that opportunity, I encourage you to remember that our Savior, when given the opportunity to save Himself, stood for the truth and spoke the truth, even though it was the truth. It was that statement, I am. 
and you shall see me seated at the right hand of power, and you shall see me coming in the clouds of glory. It was that, the truth, that condemned him to death. He stood willing to speak the truth. Do we do the same about him? We you bow your heads with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we are grateful that we can once again gather together to worship you. We're grateful that we can once again hear your word proclaimed, fellowship with one another as we start a new year. We're grateful that you called us to yourself. We're grateful that in the face of death you spoke truth. God, we pray that we would have the confidence to do the same. God, we know that it is no longer acceptable to speak truth in our culture, in our society. God, it's, it's just not welcomed. And yet, God, you have called us to be people of truth, people who give a true testimony, people whose holiness is found in you and not in ourselves. God, as we, as we think about your grace and love, as we think about your willingness to share the truth, even as it costs you your life, God, we are thankful. We are thankful that you stood for the truth and that, God, you are the truth. And our prayer is that we would be bold in our sharing of the truth. Lord God, work in our midst, in our heart. God, we thank you. We thank you for all that you've done. We thank you for all that you're going to do in our midst. And we ask this this morning in Christ's name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand with me this morning. As we start out a new year, if you do not have a relationship with Christ, how great it is that you have heard Christ share the truth about Himself. The truth is that He is the Savior. He is our Savior. He is the one who has offered Himself for us. And if you do not have a relationship with Him... If you've never trusted in Him, if you've never followed Him, today is the day to do so. The reality of the world is that we as human beings are sinful. We're not perfect. We've fallen short of God's design. But He has offered us Christ so that we can have a relationship with Him. If you do not, come and let me share with you this morning how you can have a relationship with Him. How you can know Christ, be known by Him how He can be your Savior and Lord. As we sing in just a moment, if you filled out one of those cards this morning, I encourage you, come and bring it at the altar. Take a moment to pray for that family as we start off the year. Pray for that person, that, that God would give you the opportunity to reach them. How great it would be if we could start 2017 and see sprinkled in our midst people who had been reached by you.
who God had reached and used you to do so. Commit yourself to that today. But commit yourself above all to bearing the truth about Christ. Not watering it down, not changing it to to be more acceptable, but sharing what God has told us in His Word about His Son. Because that is the only thing that has power to save. Would you respond to God's Word this morning as we sing?